Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by Keith Kroc, the Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and Environment. Before joining government, Kroc led a 30-year career as a Silicon Valley transformational leader and entrepreneur, serving as the founder and CEO of multiple billion-dollar companies, including DocSign and Ariba. He was also the youngest ever vice president of General Motors at the age of 26. As undersecretary, Kroc masterminded the Clean Network Alliance of Democracies, which the Wall Street Journal has called an indisputable success. The undersecretary and Roger discussed the Trump administration's economic diplomacy, Kroc's extensive business career, and the need for more private sector experience in government. If you enjoy the conversation, Remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Mr. Undersecretary, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much. I, I, I appreciate being here. It's a, it's a great honor. Well, uh, you know, you're well known in Silicon Valley and in the tech world. Uh, now, given your stint leading the State Department as Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy and Environment, you're well known in Washington. Uh, but for everybody else, uh, they may not know about your really amazing career um, in the world of, uh, of tech and industry. I mean, you started out, uh, this got my attention, just preparing for this, at General Motors. I was familiar with you from, you know, DocuSign and, and, and the like. But you were, you know, uh, a hard industrialist at a young age, at 26. And what I understand is the youngest in the company's history is serving as vice president. How'd you get that done? Well, you know, uh, I think I was really fortunate. Uh, General Motors was really great to me. You know, I, I, I grew up in, uh, in Ohio. My dad had a five-person machine shop uh, in the good times and the tough times it was too. And, uh, you know, the dream was to go off to Purdue, uh, become an engineer, and come back and grow the business to about 10 people. And when I was uh, uh, there, when I, when I first started out, General Motors came on campus and they gave me a full ride uh, to Purdue. And then they sent me right away to Harvard Business School. So I was off to kind of a flying start. Um, and, uh, you know, when, uh, and I, I'm a manufacturing guy, even though I had a stint early on in the New York Treasurer's office. And after I finished business school, I put a proposal in front of the board of directors and said that I believe General Motors should get involved in the robotics business. Uh, back in 81, that's when it was high tech. And they gave me the green light on it. And uh, we did a joint venture with a company called uh, Fujitsu Fanuc at the time. And you can imagine it raised a lot of eyebrows because with the Japanese, yeah. most of the board guys were, uh, you know, former World War II veterans. But we grew it uh, to become the industry leader. Today, it is the largest manufacturer of industrial robots. And the average age of uh, that division was 27 years old. And, um, and it's a real, it was a real success story. So I feel really fortunate. And that's what kind of gave me the bug 
the high tech bug uh, to move out to Silicon Valley. But amazing because what you did there is that you were working with an industrialist and 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 providing them with a pathway to innovation, which really has been the hallmark for a lot of you what you've done in your career since. But let's go back to that that moment. So let me get this straight. It, uh, you have this family business. They're thinking you're going to come back from Purdue and and you're going to take it on. And you're like, I'm going to Harvard Business School and then to GM. Was that well received? There was a little disappointment there that you didn't uh, keep the family company going or leading it. Well, you know, it was funny because when I told my dad, uh, uh, hey, General Motors uh, had me interview for this scholarship that goes back to the early college days. And my dad always said he came over from from Germany and he always said you save for three reasons. Number one, for your family home. So and your family has a nice place to live. Number two, for your retirement. So you don't have to mooch off your children. And number three, your children's education. Uh, so, and you would mortgage the first two for the third. And so when I told him, uh, you know, General Motors might be paying for it. He goes, oh, no, all those big companies are the same. They're not going to do that. Oh, he doubted it. <laughs> and, and then when it, the letter came in the mail, I go, hey, Dad. He goes, well, I always told you Generous Motors was a great company. You know, they're a good customer for ours. And, um, yeah, I think he kind of knew that I kind of a little bit outgrew it. And when I graduated from business school, because they gave me half salary, a living stipend. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I'm like 23 years old. I actually, for the first time he ever had one, I bought him a brand new car. I brought him, I bought him an Oldsmobile Delta 88. And I think after that, I mean, he was, he was just, he was just proud. And you know, one of the things he would always say is the American dream is when the student surpasses the professor. And that's how he looked at, uh, you know, his son. So. Uh, Amen. Well, that's, that, 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 that's a great, great story. Um, let's let let's we'll, we'll jump into the policy and the, and the various things you're working on uh, now in public service. But what uh, what drove you from a big company like GM, uh, you know, to really go into the startup side of business uh, and then and then growing companies? Uh, was that just the experience you described before of starting this kind of new arm of robotics for GE, GM, excuse me, that got going or, or did you kind of fall into that? Tell us, take us through that. Yeah, no, I mean, people, you know, back then people thought I was nuts leaving because at that time, everybody's, if you're working at General Motors, I mean, this was the most powerful company in the world. We had 1.5 million employees and, and I probably had as good a shot as anybody. Uh, being a CEO, uh, even though at a young age they tag you early on, um, they thought I was nuts. But um, I, you know, I got a I got a taste of that hijack, and I, you know, my dad kind of gave me the little bit of that entrepreneurial bug, and I just decided, you know what, it's either now or never, and I literally risked it all and went out to Silicon Valley. I went out as the number two person in the software company. And it was like I was running the 100-yard dash, and I got smacked right in the face with a two-by-four. <laughs> uh, because the second day I was on the job, uh, I, I found out the CEO and I didn't share the same values. And she said to me, uh, Keith, we've got a board meeting coming up. This is what I want you to tell the board. And I said, Maria, I won't do that. That would be lying. And I got that pit in my stomach. 
and go, I think I just made the biggest mistake of my life. Um, and I thought I could fix it. Uh, you know, the culture, I thought I could fix her. And after about nine months, I'll never forget it. I was in the hospital when my son was being born. Um, and she kept saying, hey, you got to come back. You got to come back. And I'm on the phone with Maria. I go, I'm not going to miss my son being born. So I basically told her to do something that's anatomically impossible to do. And I said, I quit. Um, and but out of that experience was a great one, because out of that came this great startup company, Mechanical Engineering Razzle, and then Ariba, and then and then DocuSign. But I learned the most valuable lesson that the most important thing in, in terms of building a company is having a strong set of values. And I had had that my whole life and it was right in front of my face. Um, so I just took it for granted. But uh, I well, never so you, again. You, you saw it at its best at at GM, and you saw it at its worst with what you, what came next. And then the the combination, you know, sounds like gave you that pathway to success. Um, what, a little bit more on on your on your career track, and then we'll jump into to some of the policy. Um, I'm told that people who come from the private sector, and in your case, decades long experience success, and enter government for the first time are in some respects overwhelmed, in some respects underwhelmed, overwhelmed by the bureaucracy, underwhelmed in terms of the uh, efficiency and effectiveness. Uh, talk to me about that transition from the private sector into what you encountered when you entered uh, Foggy Bottom. Well, I, I could tell you this is the most interesting thing I've ever done. Uh, it's the greatest privilege I've ever had to give back to this great country that has given so much my family and me. I mean, I had the good fortune to live in the American dream. Um, there's no question that it it doesn't run with the efficiency and productivity uh, of the private sector. And, you know, I've always focused in a whole area of productivity, all the companies that I've been able to build. Um, but I'll tell you one thing that uh, really impressed me is these great uh, foreign service officers and and the civil service. And, and, and for me, I, I talk, you know, everybody in Silicon Valley always ask me, they go, Croc, what's it like working in Washington? I go, it's not like you guys think. I go, let me tell you about these guys. These are mission-driven guys. They work their tail off. They make you guys look lazy. They have to rotate assignments every three years. They have to take a dangerous assignment. And I, I, I said, rain or shine, these guys show up. No matter what's going on and what crazy stuff's going on in Washington or around the world, these guys are professionals. And I said, just like when you see uh, uh, somebody who served in the military, you thank them for their service. If you ever see a foreign service officer or a civil servant, you thank them for their service. And they're, do and they're doing that without the stock options, huh? Well, I, by the way, I always kid around in the E. I go, I'm getting you guys stock options. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the, one of the things that uh, first thing I did um, is I brought in 12 results-oriented executives, uh, mostly from Silicon Valley. They tell me in the State Department that's never been done. And I teamed them up with the career guys. And it was, uh, you know, one plus one equals three uh, relationship. Uh, uh, or, you know, one plus one equals three in terms of what these guys could do. And, um, and, and it worked. It was an experiment, but it worked out uh, absolutely great. Uh, and I really think that uh, in the federal government, it needs more of that private sector blood, particularly in the area of economic statecraft, which is now the tool of choice. 
because out in Silicon Valley, what we do is we practice economic warcraft. Uh, now, we just happen to play by the rules uh, because if you don't have your integrity out there, you don't have anything, as I learned. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, these are skills that aren't taught in the federal government. Um, and in this whole area with China, uh, that's what it is. They're good at, at economic warcraft and they, you know, they, their economic warcraft goes back 3000 years ago to, uh, the, the warring states, which is their military warcraft. And we just happen to be able to, uh, predict a lot of things that they were going to be doing and, and understand a lot of those things. So I, I really think my belief has always been different temperaments, talents, and convictions, and diversity of thought is the catalyst for genius. So you want to make sure of both. But, you know, it's been a great experience. I mean, it really, really has. I want to get back to the China piece and the economic warcraft. Um, um, but before that, I, I, I want to lean on your experience as an in, experienced industrialist and someone who's a passionate advocate for U.S. manufacturing. Um, you know, a lot of what uh, happened in, in 2016 and when, when uh, Donald Trump was elected president was tied to a focus on U.S. manufacturing. Um, COVID-19 uh, reinforced uh, those concerns and, and deepened the concern across the country, understanding how much we were reliant on China for manufacturing. Um, Big question, and then we'll get into some of the particulars here. Can government help bring manufacturing back to the United States? Should government be doing that? In what ways can it do it? By the way, the answer is absolutely and absolutely. Uh, matter of fact, we need the government uh, to step in. Uh, you know, manufacturing is the heart and soul. Uh, of our economic engine. I mean, I grew up with it, you know, growing up in a, in a job job shop. And, and, and the Chinese, uh, through their industrial policy, um, they really gutted uh, U.S. manufacturing. It's really, it's really a shame, but it doesn't mean we can't bring it back. And I'll tell you a, a great example, which is a great success story uh, over the last couple of years, is perhaps the most important uh, company outside the United States to, to our national security is Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing. I knew you were going there. <laughs> I mean, they're the most advanced in the world. Um, they're Tell in us why. What, 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 why would a, a company in a very small country uh, that obviously um, security of which U.S. supports but doesn't have full diplomatic relations in the same way uh, that it does with mainland China, why is that where you go to first to talk about manufacturing? Well, because of the product that they build are the most sophisticated semiconductors, the chips. And that is in 5G, the most advanced smartphones. It's in the F-15 fighters. It is the foundation for artificial intelligence. It basically is the foundation for all these high tech things. And it just so happens that TSMC is the best in the world at semiconductor fabrication. That basically means manufacturing because it's really, really small stuff. It's really sophisticated. The capital costs are enormous. This is when you're talking nanometers, right? And, and the, oh, the smaller yeah. it is, the more expensive it is to produce, right? Yeah, exactly. And the more power it gives you. So, um, 
if you look at this, uh, you know, Taiwan's at risk as uh, as this island sitting out there close to China. It was part of our, our, our Taiwanese strategy. So to onboard, uh, onshore them, which was the biggest onshoring in United States history, it was a $12 billion plant, uh, five nanometers, which means it's the most sophisticated. And they're, they're probably going to expand from that. And, um, you know, we, we were able to do that. And if you look at the semiconductor business, for example, uh, uh, we invented it. Now, what ended up happening in the manufacturing side of that business is that the Chinese, Taiwanese, the Koreans, the Japanese, they bought that business from us. They gave all kinds of tax benefits and, and subsidized them, basically. And now, to be honest with you, we got to buy it back. And this time, we can't be uh, lackadaisical about this industry. And we also can't be uh, arrogant in terms of saying, hey, we're just the greatest in semiconductors. Um, and, and, and that's really, really important. So this is where public-private public partnership is absolutely key. Um, and if you look at our competitor, China, uh, you know, we're competing against China Inc. That is their government, all their national champions, the way they state run things. Um, and they put up all kinds of barriers. There's all kinds of subsidies. They protect that home market that, you know, uh, as I've said before, uh, you know, we're free traders here in the United States. But uh, when when you have a player that comes in the market, and doesn't play fair, the market's no longer free. So I want to get to China industrial policy in a minute, because you were just hitting on that when you're unpacking, explaining China Inc. But we got to this point in the conversation, you talked about Taiwan and semiconductors in response to a question about US manufacturing. And, yeah. and, and you share that this is, this is high-end manufacturing, right? This ain't, yeah. you know, kind of low-skilled work uh, and about, uh, uh, deal that you were involved in on behalf of the U.S. government, public-private, bringing, this might make sure we got this clear, uh, the Taiwan Semi Manufacturing, you know, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company to invest in the United States, to build a facility in the United States, what you called onshoring. I think in Arizona is where they're looking at. I don't know what the latest is. Yeah, but, Arizona. So where are we in that deal? And is this uh, an example uh, that should be replicated, or is this sui generis, one of a kind? You know, take take me through this, yeah. and how much is the U.S. U.S. government going to put its own public dollars into yeah. uh, onshoring like this? Yeah. It, by the way, it's a really a great question because one of the things that we had a theory about if we would be successful uh, being able to get TSMC onshore, there were two theories. Number one, it would kick off all the other semiconductor manufacturers to come and want to build in the United States because we're the big customer uh, for these things. And and not just uh, foreign companies, but our own U.S. companies because they build abroad. The second theory we had is it would be a catalyst for Congress to put together uh, a bill to help make this happen because you need money to make it happen because the cough differential is so significant. It's in the billions of dollars. And both of those held true. So what ended up happening is uh, Congress put together a bipartisan bill called the CHIPS Act, 
uh, that to really come up with $30 billion of funds uh, to be able to bring these uh, back on, on shore. And, and, and that passed unanimously in the House and 96 to 4 in the Senate. And that, are you talking about the defense authorization bill that included the CHIPS Act, or has there been appropriated That's dollars exactly as well? Right. That's exactly right. Um, and so the other thing that happened is then once once we announced that TSMC deal, then we got proposals from all kinds of semiconductor companies. So I think you're gonna you're gonna see a lot a lot more of uh, that onshoring in the semiconductor business uh, once that bill gets appropriated. Now, th that's a particular kind of manufacturing, uh, as I mentioned, high end. Uh, what about other forms of, of manufacturing and, and industrial policy? What's your view? Of, you know, we don't want to be reliant on China. You know, the famous one that came out of COVID is how reliant we are in terms of generic drugs that are manufactured yeah. in China. Um, what's your outlook with respect to relying on other countries for supply chain? And and, and is it is it only onshoring your mind? Uh, Keith, or is it also uh, shoring elsewhere with trusted yeah. friends and partners? So yeah, I, I would say onshoring and then also nearshoring. That is uh, doing it with our allies. Here's here's what's happened: is that you know 20 years ago when all this began, the cost of labor was much more significant than it is today. Those robots actually end up you get implemented, and automation's uh, much greater. So uh, the reason to go uh, in a place like China in the first place was because of the cost of labor back then. And by the way, their cost of labor has increased. Now the big thing is about uh, automation uh, and also uh, innovation. So uh, that, that reason to offshore um, is not as great. The other thing is, and it also... Um, uh, creates a higher percentage uh, of importance in terms of logistics. In other words, uh, build near your customers because there's a lot more customization going on uh, as well. So uh, so I think, and then the other big thing that nobody ever factored in uh, or, or, or really underplayed it is the political risk. And that's what COVID showed us. Can you really trust the Chinese? And so the thing that I know, Roger, is in the last year or two, I can't think of any United States companies that have expanded production uh, capabilities or manufacturing capacity in China. Um, very. Well, let's, let's talk about China then, and and certainly the risks uh, and concern about China. China being designated as a competitor, uh, some say adversary. You know, that's been will be one of the lasting kind of legacy items. Uh, from uh, the national security strategy of this administration, uh, it is definitely different than you know uh, previous administrations of outlook towards China. Um, but what about the Chinese market? You know, you used to run DocuSign. DocuSign has uh, you know I don't know half a billion, close to half a billion people using its product. Could you have gone to your board of directors and say? You know what? We're going to give up on a, a population with a billion people because the government is the Chinese Communist Party, and as in a principal way, we can't sell our products there. I, take me through uh, that side of what you're describing here. It's one yeah. thing to bring manufacturing to the United States; another thing yeah. to tell people 
in the yeah. United States, they shouldn't sell into that market. Yeah. So by the way, it's a wonderful example because the reason why I ended up coming to Washington uh, was not for a job, but it was to tell about my last trip uh, over in China because uh, at that a couple of years ago, at that time, DocuSign had reached the point of having about a half a billion users. There's now about a billion now. And so I go over and we've entered every major market except for China. And so when we're about ready to go into a major one, I would always go over for about two weeks in a listening trip. I see the technology, I talk to potential distributors, partners, customers, the government, and I've been going there since 1981. And, um, but this time it was different. And so what I saw was, um, you know, this malign regime. And I saw them that they were really stepping up their aggression. It was the first time I heard of the one belt, one way road, or one one belt. I call it the one belt, one way toll road to Beijing. <laughs> uh, that, that's just that's not what they call it. They call it one, one belt, one road. But, but uh, your comment One, belt, one way through. toll road to Beijing. I got that from a finance minister in Southeast Asia. But, um, uh, and, and so I saw that and I go, and I saw their technology. I, th I saw their drone swarm technology. And so I go back to Silicon Valley and I go, uh, I, I got to go talk to the guys in Washington. And, and, and while I was there talking to them, I didn't know anybody. Uh, I mean, I always ran the companies politically neutral. I'm not a political contributor. And that's when they asked me to serve. But, but let me tell you what happens um, over there. So let's say you're, you're a manufacturing company. You go over there. Here, I'll give you a classic scenario. So you go over there and you build a plant. Uh, and let's say it's the first of its kind or something like that. All's good. And then what the, uh, they say is, uh, well, then what will happen? You'll see these other plants like pop up next to you, these other companies. And you'll begin to lose a few people uh, and those kind of things. And, and, and you'll see these Chinese companies will be battling it out. And then all of a sudden they'll attack you in your tertiary markets, you know, small markets. And you go, okay, well, that's not that big of a deal. And then they're competing against themselves. Then all of a sudden they pick a national champion. And then all of a sudden they tie up in regulations in your market. By that time, they've stolen your intellectual property. They've stolen your key people. And then they attack you in your home market. And it's played over, over and over and over again. And we just keep falling for it. And it's, it's, it's a system that they have. And what they do is they entice you with that ginormous market. Right. And, what, and what it is, you're really trading uh, those short-term results for really long-term strategic advantage. So it's really a tightrope that, that, that companies have to watch. And I've seen so many, whether they're pharmaceutical companies, they have their intellectual property stole. I mean... I mean, Tesla's there. And by the way, when you put a plant over there, you're not just giving them uh, the intellectual property. What you're giving them is, is manufacturing processes. You're training their people. Sure. Um, that's what Apple did. I mean, they trained their people. They gave them the processes. And, you know, it's, it's, it's come back to bite us. So um, now you've, you know, really described China Inc. and, and, and the risks associated with it. Um, and and you may have been involved with, with the latest effort to say and, and, and to advance policy where the U.S. would not allow its citizens to invest in, you know, in terms of the equity markets 
uh, uh, in, in, a, in a Chinese company. So, you know, which further advances this notion of, uh, of separation. Um, tell me, take me through the rationale for, yeah. for, for that approach. But by the way, it's not every Chinese company, but it's the Chinese companies that are military companies or military civil fusion, where it's a combination of both. Uh, companies that enable their surveillance state and enable human rights abuses. And so if you think about it, these list of companies who we put export controls on and sometimes sanction, we're financing these companies. And understand that China's really, their soft underbellies, they need current currency. They, they, uh, they don't have convertible, so they need that money. And so we're just financing these guys. And, and um, so, and, so and, 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 you know, it's China. And as you were saying earlier, it's very hard to separate a private entity uh, from a public entity. And even if it's a private entity, uh, by law, aren't they bound uh, to provide whatever the government asks them for, respective of, yeah, uh, but, of what they ask? Yeah, uh, but it's, it's really not that hard in terms of military civil fusion. Uh, companies. For example, Alibaba, Tencent, and Baidu, that's military fusion. I mean, with these are some of the most strategic companies to China for artificial intelligence, for their military purposes, and clearly for their surveillance state, and clearly for like the human rights abuses. So, so take us through that. So Alibaba is this huge company. Yeah. Obviously, they have a vast amount of data, and you're using this term of civ-mil fusion, right? This idea that there's uh, that an entity now that is a civilian front actually is being leveraged for military purposes, as I understand it, right? Um, so, so in terms of what happens here, where the, the government comes knocking and Alibaba is obliged to provide uh, this data, which obviously uh, puts national security at risk. Yeah, it definitely does. And and so if you think about it, so here's the thing that happened. Um, back in 1999, uh, in the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the bill that passes, you know, every year that funds the military, uh, it was required that the DOD list these military companies. Now, for whatever reason, it didn't happen. But this year, it did for the first time. And, and so now, with the executive order, that American citizens uh, can invest in, in these companies. Um, what, what, what has been going on for the last time, China's been waiting for this time period for 20 years. Here's what they've done. First of all, they've taken these companies, they broke them up into an unnatural amount of subsidiaries and affiliates and offshore. I mean, like hundreds of them. And the purpose of that is to confuse, to conceal, and to deceive. Then the second thing that, that's happened with, with these subs and these parent companies is, uh, you know, and by the way, you just follow the money. It's been put in these index funds, like the MSCI, FTSE index funds were a little bit spread everywhere. And then those index funds have been put into these companies' products, like BlackRock and Vanguard, where, for example, BlackRock has- Huge institutional, you know- it's, Institutional ones, yeah. right? And so BlackRock, for example, has 431 emerging market funds that have these Chinese stocks in them. And they actually have 51 uh, products that 
uh, are just Chinese uh, alone. And, 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 and these civil military fusion companies are buried inside them and they're ETFs, so they're mutual funds. And then, um, the, you know, the, the trillion dollars worth of U.S. pension funds and then also throw on top of that university sure. endowments, throw on top of that foundations, so throw on top of that um, insurance companies, then they have like these products in them or these indexes in them. And so the average American investor, the average pensioner or a guy who has a pension plan is funding the next investment. It reminds me, I know when, yeah. Chir when Churchill uh, wrote uh, uh, his uh, memoir of World War II, the first volume is The Gathering Storm, I believe, and and uh, he writes uh, when he was warning of of the threat of Nazi Germany, he writes how uh, the British government was selling Rolls-Royce engines, thinking it was for civilian purposes. And he said, no, no, this was this was dual use. And it was the British actually providing the engines that ultimately led to the blitz of London. It was one of the more striking elements. Uh, and, right. and, you know, it, this is a, uh, the, the analogy here in terms of well, it's, investing it's, in, 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 in entities that could prove uh, yeah. quite, quite a threat to the U.S. It's, it's even one more level because we've cut off selling of those engines. We've cut off selling the key right. technology, but we're financing them. Well, and, but we're not the financing and also, you know, the, the, the 21st century. And, and, and we'll talk about 5G now for a couple of minutes and, and security uh, as much as it will be governed by who has the most effective and the most numerous uh, uh, fighter jets. It's also going to be about who has the best technology, Absolutely. who's controlling artificial intelligence. One of the areas that you focus on that's in this same bucket of, of key areas of competition, you talk about semiconductors, you talk about artificial intelligence, it's all related, 5G. And you've particularly been working hard with allies on this. Talk about that. Yeah. Um, and particularly you know, the Clean Network Initiative. Yeah. Uh, you know, 5G is that next generation of advanced telecommunications. And, you know, as you just pointed out, and the reason why I went to Washington is, hey, the guys with the best technology win the war. Uh, and it's a combination of technology and also building up the uh, military industrial complex. That's why manufacturing is so critical, too. Um, and so uh, this whole area of 5G, it's more than just smartphones. This has to do with manufacturing processes, uh, oil and gas platforms, utility grids, power generation systems, sanitation systems, this will, autonomous vehicles, this will affect everything because the speeds are so fast. It's a gigantic paradigm shift. It hasn't hit yet, but it, 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 it's coming. And, and so, uh, you know, what ended up happening is the Chinese, two Chinese companies, Huawei and ZTE, and a becoming the leader and selling it everywhere. And I'll be honest with you, it was a par it, it's the first technology paradigm that Silicon Valley has missed. And it's a, it's a shame. I won't go into all the reasons. But the point was this, is that uh, about a year ago, uh, Huawei announced they, they had um, 91 5G contracts all around the world and 47 of them in Europe. So it looked like that they were just going to uh, clean the table over there in Europe. 
And and understand, you know, the guys with this technology can listen in on anything. Um, and plus the fact there's a National Intelligence Act in China that requires any Chinese company, state-owned or otherwise, to turn over any information, proprietary technology, intellectual property or data upon request to the Chinese Communist Party or to the People's Liberation Army, which is their elite army, uh, or suffer the consequence. So all of a sudden it looked like, and that's what that's when everybody was in the first couple of years of the administration going over and pounding on the table and saying, don't buy Huawei. So where, where are we now, though, with respect to 5G and your this clean network initiative? I mean, yes. as, as, as you look to the end of your service here, uh, what will the Biden administration inherit? Yeah. So, so what we did is we created the clean network, which is basically uh, a comprehensive approach to addressing the, the long-term threat to data privacy, security, human rights, trust collaboration, as posed by the uh, Chinese Commerce Party. The key is that it's built on a coalition, on an alliance of democracies and companies uh, so that you've got uh, strength in numbers. So we took those 91 deals that they had, it's down to less than probably a dozen outside of China. And now on the clean network, there's 55 countries representing two thirds of the world's global GDP and 180 telcos who have signed up the clean network, and that means they will only go with trusted vendors for 5G. So in other words, they won't go with the Chinese uh, vendors. And the Wall Street Journal calls it, uh, you know, an undisputed review there. Um, you know, probably the most enduring uh, foreign policy advancement, uh, you know, uh, of, of the last four years. So it, and, and everybody, it looked like they were unstoppable. It looked like it was hopeless. But it was good old-fashioned diplomacy, and it was utilizing, uh, you know, uh, the alliance of democracies. And, and well, one I mean, of the you leverage democracy, and also uh, you also figure out a technology alternative. I mean, the the, the rap was is that if you weren't going to use uh, the Chinese solution, Huawei or otherwise, uh, it was going to be cost prohibitive. And uh, we don't have to get into those details, but I think part of the business acumen you brought to the job is that not only did you give a good national security solution, you created a business solution. So there was a real alternative. And, and I guess that's going to be uh, the, the the continuing challenge, but uh, but the path forward will have to pursue. There has to be a compelling business case to not go with the Chinese option. Yeah. And, and you know, it's what was interesting. Uh, uh, and this is where like from private sector to public sector is that uh, in the first few years of pounding the desk. And I said, guys, why don't we treat other countries like a customer? And the customer's always right. And how about a how about a value proposition? So we develop we developed that value proposition. We developed a five-pronged strategy how to go after that market. We developed a strategy how to take their momentum away. We created a rolling thunder of wins because. Um, everybody wants to go with the leader. And in a rapidly changing market, uh, leadership is not defined by size. It's defined by momentum. Plus the fact that Chinese weren't used to uh, operating in a reactive mode. We were the guys reacting in this area. Right. And so we put them on their heels and they were backpedaling. So, uh, and this clean, the clean network goes back to, uh, you know, the question that Senator Coons asked me in my Senate confirmation 
uh, hearing where he said, you know, Keith, what will be your China strategy? And, and, and I said, Mr. Senator, it, it will be a three-pronged strategy uh, harnessing uh, three areas of competitive advantage. And the first is to further strengthen our relationship with our allies and our friends. Uh, and that's what that alliance of democracy is. The second is to leverage the innovation and the resources of the private sector, which I still believe is the biggest delta opportunity for the United States government. And the third is to amplify the moral high ground of democratic values throughout the world. And that's exactly what this alliance of democracy. Uh, that, that, that playbook rhymes with a with a, a Reagan playbook, as far as I can recall. We'll get yeah. to the Reagan lightning round in just a minute. Um, you're, you're popular in Taiwan. You are not popular uh, in Beijing. You recently took a trip to Germany and Berlin, and and you called out the great firewall of China separates the Chinese people from the free world, just as the Berlin Wall separated the German people from each other. How was that received? Well, by the way, I can tell you the, the people in Taiwan and the people all uh, around the world who are democracies, it went, it went viral. It, uh, it was great. The Chinese, they blocked it immediately. Uh, now they're ambassadors over here who use Twitter, which is barred in China, they, you know, they blasted it. Um, but the analogy is true because, uh, you know, just like that Berlin Wall separated uh, the German, German people from each other, the, the, the China, the Great China Firewall separ separates the Chinese from the rest of the world. And I actually call it the Great One-Way China Firewall because all the data can come in for their own uh, purposes, like artificial intelligence, but no can, none can go out. And reciprocally, uh, all their propaganda can go out, but the truth can't come in. And I just think that it, it was just, you know, we were yeah, right. No, that's, that's not a winning model, right? That's ultimately going to be their biggest vulnerability, huh? I think it's a, a huge vulnerability because it only lasts that long. And, and I really believe there's no sustainable prosperity uh, without liberty. Great opportunity now to transition to our lightning round. Somehow uh, we've been we're, we're near the end of uh, our conversation. It's gone uh, lightning fast. But this is where we ask our guests, uh, Mr. Undersecretary, to share their favorite book about Reagan, their favorite Reagan speech, their favorite Reagan quote. You can give us all three, two or just one. Uh, over to you. Well, I don't think there's any doubt what my favorite quote is. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. That's a winner. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's, that's a winner for sure. My favorite speech is The Evil Empire. You know, my movie, my favorite movie is definitely The Gipper. You know, I mean, <laughs> uh, who, who, who can deny that? And, you know, I think as, as far as a book goes, I think it's, uh, you know, the crusader Ronald Reagan uh, and the fall of communism. Um, and there's a lot of parallels with what's going on in China, but there's a lot of differences, too. It's it's a different kind of a battle. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And you've shared with us today many ways in which it rhymes. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Under Secretary of State, Mr. Keith Kroc, thank you so much uh, for joining the show. We hope to have you back again in the not too distant future. And thank you for your service. By the way, thank you. And uh, it's been a great honor. Thanks so much. God bless you.